All right, our scripture reading for today comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Nice little cheery passage. <laughs> Sunday morning. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Steve. I'm the associate pastor here. Um, anybody ever have just like a doozy of a week? We had one of those this week. <laughs> everybody in our house got sick. I'm still sort of fighting it off a little bit myself. Our kids were up like four times last night with various things. And so if my voice gives out or if I fall asleep in the middle of the sermon, just wake me up. I'll keep going, I promise. But it was one of those, it was one of those kind of weeks, you know? And then there's this text and all this kind of stuff. So I feel like we should probably pray first, and then we can get started. So pray with me. Father, we, uh, we come to you this morning knowing that each and every one of us come into this room in a different place, bringing stuff with us, experiences from our life, from our week, maybe even from the last couple of hours. And God, we just ask now that all those things would be cleared away, that you would speak to us through your word, you would soften our hearts to be receptive to what you want us to hear this morning. Pray that you would move us from receiving information to participating in your kingdom and in the things that you have for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Luke 19. I want to start with a story about two stonemasons. This is kind of a fun old story. Two stonemasons are working on a wall. The first one is asked the question, do you like your job? And he responds, I've been building this wall for as long as I can remember. The work is monotonous. It's hot out here in this scorching sun. The stones are heavy. And lifting them day after day is backbreaking. I'm not even sure if this project will be completed 
in my lifetime. But it's a job, and it pays the bills. Second stonemason working on the same wall is asked the same question, do you like your job? And he responds, I've been working on this wall for as long as I can remember. The work is monotonous. It's really hot out here in this scorching sun. Lifting these stones day after day is backbreaking. I'm not even sure if this project will be completed in my lifetime. But I love my job. I love my job because I am building a cathedral. I love this story because it reminds me, I think it reminds all of us, that we can say we believe certain things to be true. We can say we subscribe to certain doctrinal statements or a theological position, whatever those things might be. But oftentimes, underneath those beliefs, there is a story that we live by, a story that drives us. These two stonemasons were doing the same work on the same wall, but coming at it from two very different places. I'm just paying the bills, just a job. I am building a cathedral. Those are two very different stories. You see, the stories that we tell ourselves are so important because they shape and determine our view of the world, how we interact with the world. My grandfather was a God-fearing man. I truly believe that he loved Jesus, but his story was this. Life dealt me a bad hand, and everyone and everything is against me. And that was the story that he lived by. What's your story? Maybe another way of asking it is what is your story behind the story, your story underneath the story? I'm not a big fan of these kinds of like, there's two sorts of people in the world kind of statements. But I do think, I do believe that there are two fundamental stories. And when you peel back the layers, they go something like this. God is in control. God is not in control. Maybe that's oversimplifying, but I think it is actually true. Again, whatever our theological or doctrinal convictions, whatever we say we believe about the world, there are some of us who live out of this story that says this world is a terrible place, people are out to get me, something bad can happen at any minute, and particularly in 2016, if we elect the wrong person, it's all over anyway, right? <laughs> then there are others of us who are able to say, like the Apostle Paul in his letter to his friends in Rome, for I am sure, the NIV says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, this is a very comprehensive list, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Those are, again, two radically different stories. So, hold on to that thought for a moment while we do a little bit of review, and then we'll get into this text. So, we've been in the book of Esther. Pastor Albert's been teaching through the book of Esther. He'll be back next Sunday to continue that series. But throughout the fall and here into the winter quarter, we've been pausing from time to time to look at the Gospel of Luke in this series that we're calling the Travel Narratives. Travel Narratives is a title that scholars give to the middle section of Luke's Gospel. From chapter 9 here through chapter 19, Jesus 
is on the road. He's traveling towards Jerusalem. We even get a hint of that in verse 11 as he gets closer and closer to Jerusalem. He's on the road. He's in between Galilee, which for him was home, and Jerusalem, where his ultimate destiny lies. And he's in this hostile territory of Samaria, this in-between space. And what's fascinating, at least to me, and this has really been a frame for this series, is that here in this hostile territory, Jesus doesn't turn the dial up on his own version of hostile rhetoric. In fact, if anything, he speaks more gently in many ways. He uses everyday language and metaphors, and he tells a bunch of stories, tells a bunch of parables to help people understand what he is up to. So today's story is this sort of odd, harsh-sounding parable from Luke 19. We're actually going to start in verse 12. Let's kind of summarize what we see in the story. So the story opens with Jesus saying there's a nobleman who's been ruling in a particular country, and he decides to go somewhere else to assume the rule of that country, but intending to one day come back to his original country. Again, verse 11 is sort of a big hint and signal verse before Jesus gets into the story. This story is about what is happening in Jesus's life in this moment as he gets closer and closer to Jerusalem. So the nobleman leaves, after he leaves, it turns out that the people who were living under his rule kind of like it now that he's gone. So they sign a petition, they send a delegation after him to say, hey man, we're good. Don't come back. <laughs> we kind of like it without you here. Now before he had left, the nobleman had entrusted 10 servants to conduct his business. He brings these 10 servants in and he pays them in the form of minas. A mina was three months worth of wages for a common laborer. He gives them all the same amount. Each one of these 10 servants gets 10 minas, and then he gives them the same command, engage in business. This is kind of a vague command, but essentially he says, hey, take what I've given you and go use it. Go do something with it. Go invest it. Go see what happens. Engage in business. Start something. See what you can do with what I've given you. So again, he leaves. They don't want him, but then he eventually comes back. And verse 15 says he comes back having received the kingdom. So he's now king in two places. And as you're reading the story and hearing the story, you might think, oh man, he's coming back. He's going to let these guys, these rebellious people have it. But what's the first thing that he does? He doesn't go to his enemies first. He checks in instead with these servants. These ten servants, what have they been up to with the money that he gave him? Verse 15 again, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. We only find out about three of the ten. The first we find out invested, engaged in business, and made ten more minas. He doubled the original amount. The second sees a 50% return on investment. The nobleman is pleased. Well done, good servant. Verse 17, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And then he gives five cities to the one who earned five minas. There's this reciprocity, right? You've been faithful with this thing. Now I'm going to give you even more 
to be faithful with. Bigger opportunity opens up for them. But then the third servant comes in and the story takes this very dark turn, right? Verse 20, another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, which is, of course, where you put your money, right, when you're trying to save it for something. (laughs) I don't get that at all. I kept it laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. Back to this idea of stories. What is this servant's story? What is his story behind the story. The story is this nobleman is severe, unfair, harsh. The story is driven by fear. He even says it I was afraid of you. What's the response? Well, the response is indeed harsh. The nobleman says, I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant, you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have at least collected it with some interest. So the nobleman takes the minas he gave to the very first servant, which raises the question, this guy had 10, he earns 10 more, now he gets this bonus 10, what's that all about? How does a nobleman respond? He says, I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Again, this idea of faithfulness with something small leading to more responsibility, bigger opportunities. And then, of course, this gnarly ending, verse 27. Now he gets to the enemies. As for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, we could wrap up right here we could pray right now take communion sing some songs go to halftime <laughs> and at some point today you'd probably be like what was that what was that all about this does not sound like a very jesusy story at all so what we need to do to really understand what jesus is trying to say here is to look at what comes right before this and then to take a quick look at some things that come after he tells this story so what comes before what comes before this is a very famous scene. We love to tell this story to our kids. It's the story of a wee little man named Zacchaeus. Let's take a look at that. Luke 19, verse 1. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, creating a great children's song in his wake, (laughs) for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. How did Jesus know this guy's name? So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. If you've been here for this series that we've been doing in Luke. This should be familiar to you by now. They all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. 
And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Think about that for a minute. Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Zacchaeus story follows a pattern that's repeated all throughout Luke's gospel. It goes something like this. Jesus will spend time with a person of questionable reputation, or he'll tell a story about a person of questionable reputation, and all the respectable people freak out about it, grumble, complain. What is he doing? Oh, eating with sinners. But then the questionable person gets it, has this moment of deep understanding, is restored to his community, is restored in his relationship with God. And as a result, this unlikely person becomes the hero. A couple of examples. There's numerous ones throughout the Gospel of Luke, just three quick ones. Luke 7, Jesus has an interaction with a Roman soldier, a Roman centurion. And after that conversation, Jesus says, there's nobody I've ever seen who has the kind of faith that this guy has. Everyone's like, what? Roman soldier? Luke 10, Jesus tells a story of the good Samaritan. Samaritan becomes the unlikely hero of the story. Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, the son who comes home, and everyone thinks when he comes home, he's going to get it. And instead, the father welcomes him home and throws this big party for him. Over and over again, the outsider is brought in, the sinner is forgiven, the lost is found. This repeated pattern all through Luke's gospel. So the Zacchaeus story is a prime example of that pattern, but it's also an example of another repeated theme, and it's this. When the lost is found, when the sinner is forgiven, when the unlikely hero is restored, there is this dramatic, tangible response. It's not just a conversion of thinking. I used to believe this, but now I believe this. There are real practical implications for the people that Jesus encounters, for the characters that he makes the heroes of his stories. So let's say it again. Zacchaeus has this interaction with Jesus. His story changes from, I'm a loser, I'm a traitor, everybody hates me, but at least I'm rich, to redeemed and restored to salvation has come to my house. And that transformation leads him to give half his possessions to the poor and to repay what he's cheated from people and not just repay it, but give it back four times over. A dramatic, practical, tangible response to this interaction with Jesus. So, it is right after this real-life story, this real-life interaction with Zacchaeus, that Jesus tells this fictional story about the nobleman and his servant. So again, the question is, what is Jesus trying to say? One more observation, and then I'll try to answer that question. The servant who gets in trouble in the parable doesn't blow it because they made a bad investment choice. It's not like they put their 10 minas in Enron or whatever bad choice you could have made, and it's all gone. The problem is not that he didn't earn as much as the others. It's not like the first guy earned 10, the second guy earned 5, and he only earned 1. 
The problem is that he did nothing. He tied it up in a handkerchief. He sat on the sidelines. He refused to participate. Eugene Peterson, commenting on this parable, says, we settle for information about Jesus without participation. Non-participation is not a casual matter. There are no non-participants in Jesus' kingdom. So the question is, do we settle for information without participation? I think it's important to ask next, well, what does it mean then to participate in Jesus' kingdom? Those of us who believe in Jesus, who are trying to follow Jesus, we believe that he is up to something in the world. And what he's up to has everything to do with this pattern that we've seen throughout Luke's gospel. It has everything to do with finding lost things, restoring broken relationships, bringing the outsider back in. In Luke 4, Jesus says, this is at the very beginning of his public ministry. This is sort of like his mission statement declaration of what he's going to be all about. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke 19.10, at the end of Zacchaeus' story, he says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That is what Jesus is up to in this world. And anyone who wants to follow Jesus is then invited to help do that. That's as simple as I know how to explain it. So again, what does it look like for us to do this? How do we participate in this? Well, every one of us has meanness. God has given us all something, and in many cases, God has given us a lot. He's given us life, breath, skills, talents, resources, time, gifts, experiences. He's given us stories. And so participation in Jesus' kingdom means using those things to be good news to people who desperately need good news. Now, this doesn't mean that we do everything. This doesn't mean we say yes to every opportunity. It doesn't mean we have to eradicate all the problems that we see in our world, but it does mean we must do something. Don't settle for information. Don't refuse to participate. Now, I want to talk about three levels of participation here for a moment because I think there can be a lot of confusion about this. So first, there's what I would call the global level of participation in Jesus' kingdom. And what I mean here is not necessarily getting on a plane and flying to some far-off country to go do something somewhere else, but what I'm talking about here is the big issues that we see in our world. And I'm guessing that in a room like this, if we were to brainstorm, we would have a very, very long list of things. Everything from sex trafficking to providing clean drinking water for people to serving refugees to you name it. The list could go on and on and on. And I think for a lot of us, we look at the needs that we see in our world and it can be paralyzing, so we do nothing. So the question is, where do you start in the face of so many needs? And I would guess that if you were to really think about it, there are some issues, one issue, two issues, I don't even know what the number is, that 
creates what I would call a holy discontent in you. This response where when you hear about it, when you see it, something in your bones goes, that should not be. It should not be. Someone should do something about that. <laughs> what is your holy discontent? I have a lot, so I'll just share one. For me, one of the reasons I'm a pastor is I have a big heart for people who, what I would say, have lost their good news. Maybe at one point they professed to believe in Jesus or they were attending church or whatever, but through a series of events, almost always some sort of hurtful interpersonal interaction with someone in the church. They don't want anything to do with it anymore. They've lost their good news. Helping people recover their good news is one of the reasons I do what I do. What is your holy discontent? We have a number of partners both here in Oakland and around the world who are doing great work and they would love your prayer, your encouragement, your partnership and participation. You can go to our webpage. This is a bad picture of our webpage. But if you go to Neighborhood and World and you click on Missions, there's two tabs there. There's a global and a local. You can read about some of our partners. And again, I would encourage you to see if there's any intersection between that and your holy discontent. So there's the global level and then there's the local level. And what I really mean here is the local church level. A lot of us want to skip this level of participation. But the local church is described in Scripture as the body of Christ. The church is how Jesus' kingdom operates in the world. And the church, ours included, does a lot of stuff wrong, but the solution is not to stay on the sidelines. The solution is to get involved. And I think this is where this parable really hits home for us this morning, because if Jesus were here, I think he would tell this story to church people. This isn't a story he would tell to just some random person he ran into on the street. This is a story he would share with people inside the church. And so we need to ask ourselves, am I investing in the body? Or am I just showing up and observing from the sidelines? As you can probably tell from our announcement time this morning, there's a lot going on here on Sunday and throughout the week. So I'm just going to throw out a couple of ways to participate in the life of regeneration. One is to get involved in a home group. These are our small groups that meet all around Oakland and Alameda, and a home group is a great way to have a real, practical encounter with God and with people. You could also serve on our hospitality team, which involves greeting people as they walk in on Sunday morning. You could work on our cafe team, serving people a coffee. If you're more of a behind-the-scenes person, you could help with our production team. This involves helping set up the sanctuary or clean up afterwards, run the slides. Steph would love help with the slides, I'm sure. Any of those kinds of things. If you have questions about what it looks like to serve here on a Sunday morning, come talk to me. I'd love to let you know how you can get involved in all that. If you're really up for it, if you're really up for it, go to one of Grace's information meetings in February and sign up for this next cycle of serving our kids. So to me, it doesn't really matter what it is that you invest in. You must invest. So again, if you're interested in any of these opportunities, we'd love to help you 
find a way to do that. So global level, local level, and then there's what I would call the micro level. And what I mean here is our families, our roommates, our coworkers, the people that we spend a lot of time with. I did college ministry for a number of years and it was always interesting to me how students wanted to go somewhere around the world, solve someone's problem, do some really big thing, and could not forgive their dad. Couldn't talk to their annoying roommate about whatever the issue was that was going on between them. Struggled to have relationship with their siblings. Whatever those things are, you cannot skip over the people in your life who you live with and who you deal with on a daily basis. So three levels of participation. Global, local, the micro. So my question is simply this, where do you need to invest your minas? Now I said earlier that to understand what Jesus is saying in this parable, we need to kind of see what comes before and then also what comes after. So what comes after Jesus tells this story? This is the last story that Jesus tells on the road as he heads to Jerusalem. So immediately after telling the story, he walks up the hill and enters Jerusalem, and he's welcomed there, this big ceremonious welcoming of Jesus as he enters Jerusalem, what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. You can read about that in Luke 19, 37 and 38. So he's welcomed, then he has this moment where he looks over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps for the city, for all the brokenness that he sees there, Luke 19, 41 and 42. Then he goes to the temple. He sees all the corruption that's going on in the temple. He cleanses the temple, Luke 19, 45 to 48. And that incident in particular sets off these last interactions that he has with the religious leaders of the day. Luke 20 and 21 is this series of conversations Jesus has with the religious authorities. So it's important that we read this story in light of this context. This is not just a story about the end of time. This is about what's happening in Jesus' life in that moment. Again, Luke 19.11, he's about to enter Jerusalem. He's about to enter Jerusalem as its king, its returning king, a king in two places. And he's setting this story up to sort of foreshadow the coming conflict, the culmination of the conflict between him and the religious leaders of Israel. Now, what happens next involves one final big twist. Just like the nobleman, Jesus will be rejected as king. You can read about that in Luke 22 and 23, his betrayal, his trial, his crucifixion. And then remember how the parable ends. Luke 19, 27. As for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Sounds like a very angry, vengeful God kind of thing to say. But this is the one part of this fictional story that doesn't happen in reality. Again, Jesus is rejected as king, just like the nobleman, but Jesus does not bring his enemies in and have them slaughtered in front of him. In fact, it's exactly the opposite thing that happens, right? Jesus is brought before his enemies and allows himself to be slaughtered. Even though he has every right to strike them down, he instead gives his life in their place. 
He gives his life in our place. This is why Jesus is such good news for all of us. This unmerited favor, this grace. Jesus doesn't slaughter his enemies. He lays his life down for them. This brings us back to the original question. What story are you living from? What story are you living from? You see, we don't participate in the kingdom to earn brownie points or to serve and satisfy an angry, vengeful God. We don't make coffee on Sunday morning. We don't serve kids. We don't hang out with refugees so that God will love us. We do those things because we are already loved. That's a very different story. Our participation in Jesus' kingdom is not about putting in our time, doing hard work so that we can pay the bills. So my hope and prayer is that we can say, like the second stonemason, I love this. I love this. I love what I get to do. I love participating in this because we're building a cathedral. We're building Jesus' kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that you are not a vengeful God who gives out what we deserve. And instead of bringing your enemies in and having them slaughtered before you, you sent your son Jesus to die in their place, to die in our place. For the grace that that unleashes in the world. Father, may we never be a church that settles for information, but a church that loves to participate in what you are doing in the world. But as we do that, may it be formed by this story of Jesus, this story of grace. May we do all the different things that we do because we are loved, because of what you have done for us, not to try to earn your favor or to impress people or to look good. May we participate in your kingdom because we are loved and because of what you have done on our behalf. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.